Today's program has been brought to you by 360 Cookware, American-made, green-manufactured cookware using vapor technology. For more information, visit 360cookware.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today we're coming to you live from Roberto's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to the show live at noon every Monday or download the podcast at iTunes. Today, my guest is gallerist, entrepreneur, and writer Jen Beckman. Jen opened her eponymous art gallery on Manhattan's Lower East Side in 2003 and launched Jen Beckman Projects in 2007, an organization devoted to connecting a larger audience with the joy of art collecting. Jen Beckman Projects also launched Hey Hotshot, a photography competition, and the wildly successful 20 by 200, an e-commerce site that offers curated, affordable, limited edition artwork. In January of 2007, American Photo named Jen an Innovator of the Year, and in 2008, the Griffin Museum of Photography honored her with the Rising Star Award. And, no less, in April 2010, she was named one of Fast Company's most influential women in technology. Jen is a very busy and talented woman, and I'm so happy she's here today. (laughs) Welcome. Thanks for being here, Jen. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So you and I started our art-related careers at a relatively similar time, like 2003-2004, although you had a long career before that. I remember hearing about your gallery, um, and it seemed to be like this hub of all kids cool and creative and awesome (laughs) and I remember it was just it seemed like that era where everyone in New York specifically like the Lower East Side Manhattan kids everyone was like writing and documenting everything about their life it was like the beginning of like the cool scenester blogging and how do you think that scene informed sort of the launch of the gallery it's so funny to hear you describe it as cool because I actually consider myself to be pretty uncool. <laughs> I, I like I and I actually like that about myself. I mean, um w- you know, I think uh a lot of what was sort of baked into 20 um, not 20 by 200 the gallery from the start was the fact that I had been an internet entrepreneur for a long time mm-hmm. before that and um I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday saying that uh I'm one of these people where my parents were really worried about me for a long time. <laughs> Because I dropped out of college and I worked at a hotel and I worked at a jazz publishing house and I lived with three roommates and I just didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And it turned out that I was just waiting for the web to be a thing because the minute that the web came into existence in the mid 90s, I was sort of, oh, this is what I want to do. And so that just sort of instantly became a big part of who I was and what I did. And so going into having the gallery, it always informed what I was doing. And it made sense that, um, you know, it made sense that it was just a part of my program all the time. And it was, uh, and that was what my community was. I mean, one of the funny things about the gallery that I didn't anticipate before I opened it was, uh, I call it the, the whole shop girl thing <laughs> of, you know, you have this, um, there's this shared understanding that, you know, when you're a retail business and I'm sitting at that desk there, that I'm there to be at your service, which is, you know, as it generally should be. But a lot of the transacting that happens in a gallery environment doesn't actually happen with people just walking through the door. And it was also very isolating because, you know, a gallery doesn't get a lot of foot traffic during the week and things like that. Anyway, so my community was online. And um, and so... 
and I was still very connected with a lot of stuff that was going online and I looked for artists online. And so it just um, was a natural extension of, um, you know, the well, and also actually my my last job before I opened the gallery, which I got fired from. <laughs> Thank you, Scott Heiferman, now an investor in Jim Beckman Projects, um, was at Meetup where um, uh, Scott also started Photolog. So I had this sort of like whole online photography thing that had been percolating that predated my interest in opening a gallery. And so all of that stuff just happened organically. And then like Lockhart Steele from Curbed is, you know, at that at that time, he was the managing editor of Gawker. Mm -hmm. And he walked by the gallery every day on his way to work. And Elizabeth Spires wrote an article about the gallery in 2003. And so the online thing was always a big part of it. And I was also really interested in what was going on with photography online. And when the gallery program started, I really gravitated towards photography. Um, you know, for many years, people thought of us as being exclusively a photography mm -hmm. gallery. And honestly, it was because I didn't have any context or experience. And I felt much more comfortable with photography. And I, I actually, when people are getting started with collecting, I actually often recommend that they get started with photography because I feel like as a denizen of the modern world, like everybody feels like they know how to look at a photograph. Mm -hmm. Whereas looking at fine art, um, people sort of feel the weight of everything they don't know about art, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think that people just generally sort of have more fluency with photography. Um, and the price point was better and all that stuff. But anyway, so it all it all just sort of meshed together. Um, and... Uh, and because my identity was so wrapped up in the online thing and blogging and newsletters, that was all a part of the business as well. And it ended up being a good thing because I managed to make the gallery bigger than it was. I mean, and you know what a miracle blogging was like back <laughs> in the day. You know, exactly. I mean, it was it was a a much more uh, powerful platform to launch things than I think it is now. So right. we should talk about, I want to talk about that. So you were the founding editor of both Unbeige and Personism. So yes. what was that like to launch those? I mean, Unbeige was, was huge. And tell me about how that came about. Um, well, that was Spires, actually. She was uh, at that time. And it was funny. That had started as a conversation about she was looking for somebody to do a design blog for Media Bistro. And we were brainstorming she was asking me for recommendations and I will always be grateful to her for this because um, she, after having a few conversations about it, she said to me, I think you should do it. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and she said, no, I think that you should do it. And I said, well, I'm not a design expert. I'm, I'm a huge fan of design and I always have been. And she's like, no, you can totally do it. You should do it. And, um, and I think that part of it was, and I was a huge fan of design. And actually, Unbeige is named um, based on a quote from Tibor Kallman, who had always been a hero of mine. And um, and so having I always wrote it from the perspective of being a fan mm -hmm. and was always very transparent about not knowing stuff, which is very similar to my approach, what my approach had with art had been as well. And, um, you know, I, and it was it was amazing. I mean, I think about the relationships that I forged with people during that time period. Um, and I was able to do it in a very authentic way because I wasn't saying I'm some design authority. I, I'm someone who 
trust my instincts and for better or for worse is very opinionated. I think that it's interesting. That's a, a very big contrast between the way blogs were in 2003 and four early 2000s and the way they are now, especially in the lifestyle niche. I think most people, if you're listening and you weren't a big blog reader of the lifestyle category in the early 2000s, it was like a selling point to not be an expert. Right. And I think that, I mean, and I think that that's, um, I mean, I think that there's sort of like a, you know, the people who were at the vanguard to a certain extent became the experts that they are, you, you know, because of the length of experience that they've had. So, you know, like Jason Kotke mm-hmm. is, you know, he is, you know, a curator of the web um, because that's what he started doing yeah. a really long time ago. And, you know, you are sort of the, you know, the sort of blogger zero of kind of like lifestyle design blogging because you've been doing it for a long time. And like, I, I mean, I think the difference now is that it is much harder to to it's it, the point of entry is more difficult mm-hmm. and although you know you still see I mean if you look at like say Tavi mm-hmm. right I mean she's someone who was a really enthusiastic kid of course exactly. there isn't you know an army of enthusiastic quirky kids in the Midwest true you know but she I th- so I, I think it's harder um, but I also still think it's so much more democratic than say like the publishing industry yes. had been. Well, I think what's interesting about Tavi in particular is that she is still in that early 2000s selling point of like being just pure enthusiasm and not an expert. Right. But I think that's why she's still standing out is that like most lifestyle bloggers now, I think immediately brand themselves as like editor in chief, expert of whatever. Right. And I think it's hard to be as accessible and relatable if you immediately present yourself as that, especially if you're not that because it's just, right. it's not as realistic. But I think in terms of accessibility, that's this huge thread that runs through all of your projects. And we're going to get into all your projects, but that's something that's a huge factor of 20 by 200 and Hey Hotshot. There's just this sort of vibe of like bringing things that are that are lesser known or that are independent or sort of on the cusp and you're bringing that to people and making it easy to understand and easy to relate to. Why do you think that's a huge part of what you do? Um, I think that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I sort of, one of the most important things to me in everything that I do is that I try as much as possible to think about how people are going to react and feel about, I mean, I, you know, I, I always say that sort of having my empathy like up to 11 is really the most important way for me to succeed at my job. And I spend a lot of time thinking about how stuff is going to make them feel. And I can't lie. Like I use myself as the example of, you know, this makes me feel uncool. This makes me feel (laughs) dumb. This makes me feel, you know, I'm excited about this. And um, I was actually, um, I'm really good friends with uh, Nine McAvoy, who's the CEO of Chronicle Books. And we, how lucky am I to have that friendship? (laughs) I love him. Um, But, you know, we were talking about it. We had lunch um, last week and we were talking about um, when we first became friends, one of the conversations that we had that cemented our friendship is that we were talking about how he, he, as he described it, um, he's ahead of the curve, but only by five minutes or so. And like, it's a great place to be Um, because I am actually most interested in democratizing all the things that I'm interested in Mm -hmm. um, because I feel like way too many people are shut out from it. And uh, it sounds kind of corny, but I, I really think that people are sort of missing out on joy if they're not living with art, are missing out on knowledge if they're too intimidated to dive into a topic. And so I always really, I think about access all the time because um, I 
I guess I, I really do, I really do believe that my own enthusiasm and curiosity has led to everything for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, I, and I, I want to kind of set an example for other people to say, like, the world's not going to come to an end if you try something that you're not good at. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and that it's okay to feel unsure and that it's okay to feel uninformed and all of that stuff. And, you know, it's actually easier than it looks, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think Amer- I was reading American Photo Magazine said of you that you're developing a new generation of photo artists and consumers. And I, it's a very nice compliment. It's very accurate. I think that the way you've kind of taught people in a friendly, approachable way is that like you can have art in your house. You can pick what you think is good. It doesn't have to cost a million dollars, but it's kind of a gateway. And I, when you talked about 28 by 200 and the $20 prints I saw in an interview, you said it kind of thought of it as like a gateway drug to right. the idea of collecting. And I think that's, that's a wonderful way to think about it because you're enticing people into a world that can be incredibly intimidating. Well, and it's also, it's grounded in reality as well, which is, you know, um, and I mean, 20 by 200 was born of experiences that I had in the gallery itself where I would see people not buy art. Um, yeah. And and they and, you know, the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. You know, the the context of a gallery is it's this much because we say so. You can't return it. Um, it is a big it's usually a big investment. Even, you know, my gallery is defined as being affordable because most things are under $10,000 and we have a lot of things in the $5,000 range, but that's a serious, you know, there are very few people for whom spending $5,000 is not a serious investment. There are very few people for whom spending $1,000 is not a serious investment, $500. And if you've never been given an opportunity to learn about what your own taste is and to potentially make mistakes, then you're really sort of jumping into the abyss. And so, you know, to a certain extent, I I thought, well, what's the most risk-free way that I can get somebody engaged in the experience? And, you know, like the price of lunch in New York City was kind of my, (laughs) that was, that was sort of my guidepost. And, um, and, you know, sort of saying to people, like, I want you to love what you buy, but if you spend $20 on a print or $60 a print and you don't love it, like, it's okay because you've actually Mm -hmm. learned something Mm -hmm. about yourself and, Ultimately, it really is about buying what you love. And I, and I think that I actually think that the one thing I've learned more than anything else when it comes to getting people to buy art is that they really just need to be given permission mm-hmm. to buy something because they like it. And most people sort of come into it with this idea of a rule book of all the stuff that they're supposed to know before making a commitment or of with a mistrust of dealers or with a fear of looking stupid or, you know, being exposed as having bad taste. And, um, you know, by and large, like the conversations that I have with people about getting started collecting, I I feel like are, um, you know, so now I've had my gallery, it'll be 10 years in March. So, um, people, it's, I, I find it hard to believe that people think of me as an expert because I, kind of always hope to be a beginner because a lot of my enthusiasm it's like beginner mind isn't that like a zen thing or something it is beginner mind but to me it's also very quintessentially new york you <laughs> grew up in new york right. you went to Stuyvesant. <laughs> you went to hunter i think that sort of can do spirit seems very very new york to me and i just i mean i want people to I, I find that sort of saying to people like it's okay you can buy what you love it's okay um you know 
if you have a postcard that you really love and you put it in a frame that can live on your wall next to something else that you maybe bought for different reasons or because it's a more serious investment. And so, you know, I find a lot of what I'm doing is giving people permission. And it's really gratifying because, um, I mean, the reason that I opened the gallery in 2003 was because I was so frustrated that no one had ever tried to sell me art. It just seemed preposterous. I mean, it's a preposterous reason to open a gallery. I don't, that I don't recommend. <laughs> but I literally, but, I had nothing on my walls when I opened the gallery. I, mean, I hindsight's obviously 2020, but it seems like it was actually a wonderful reason to open a gallery because you really connected with an audience of people who probably felt the same way and didn't know that. Right. And I think that, I mean, and, and that's the five minutes ahead of the curve thing that I'm talking about, which is that if I feel frustrated that I've never been sold art before, then there are a lot of people, I am not a unicorn. That's like one of my favorite things. Anyone who works with me will tell you too. Like I always talk about sort of, I, like I'm not a unicorn. Our customers are not unicorns. There, there's a lot that we have in common with people. And, you know, so, so I just sort of thought, well, if I feel like this, like there's a huge opportunity. There are many, many other people who are, you know, have some of the same characteristics as I do. And it just seemed like a crying shame that nobody was trying to sell them art not only because I felt like I was missing out on what would have been a very high quality experience, but also because I had friends who were artists and I so, saw how hard it was to, for them to build and support a practice. And that was, I mean, that was a big part of the thrust to open the gallery to begin with. I just sort of looked at it and I was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, there has to be a better <laughs> way to do this. Well, we're going to talk about that way and the way that it's affected artists after the break. We'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by AmeriCraft. AmeriCraft and 360 Cookware are proud sponsors of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. AmeriCraft is an American company, and like Heritage Radio Network, they provide the best. Their 360 Cookware is made of the highest quality ingredients, like United States Steel. It is made in the greenest cookware manufacturing plant in the world. AmeriCraft makes great cookware and is focused on improvement. 360 Cookware is their exclusive line. It's a contemporary line of cookware and bakeware intended to let you, the Heritage Radio Network listeners, have a unique cooking experience. Its vapor seal allows food to be cooked in its natural juices, preserving all of the vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients without added water, oils, or fats. 360 Cookware invites you to learn more about how this process works on their website, www.360cookware.com. 
Hey, welcome back to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonnie, and today I'm speaking with gallerist, entrepreneur, and writer, Jen Beckman. We were talking before the break about 20 by 200 and the idea of needing to create a sphere where artists who are having a hard time kind of breaking into a successful practice have a place to do that. Um, I want to talk about two by, 20 by 200 and its founding and sort of where you got the idea for this sort of interesting price structure, which is sort of and it's now more sizes, but initially started as like three different sizes mm-hmm. with three different price points, starting with as low as $20. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that price structure? Um, well, it was actually, it was a via an IM conversation that I had with Kate Bingaman Bird oh, on a Sunday night. She's the best. It's so funny because, um, she, you know, she was a hotshot, actually. She and was um, had, had a show at the gallery and um, she showed me Tiny Showcase. And one of the artists that I had worked with was doing a print there. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Um, And it's a cool thing that they're doing this. And what, you know, what could we do that would be like that? And it was in the context of all the things that I was frustrated with, with people not buying Mm -hmm. work and, um, and, you know, trying to create an entry point for people. And, but I also knew that I didn't really want to get into the business of only selling affordable prints yes. um, for a bunch of reasons. Um, some of them being that I really I wanted it to be an entry point for people. And I really, to this day, believe that anyone who starts with us for with, you know, a twenty four dollar print or a sixty dollar print is someone who will potentially buy a five or ten thousand dollar print from us someday. And I really hope that they do it because that means that they feel confident enough in their own taste to make an investment that I know they'll be excited about having made. There are so many things that you can spend a lot of money on that are so much less rewarding, like mm-hmm. a handbag or <laughs> a flat screen TV. And so anyway, so it was very important to me that we structured it in a way that had that continuum in mind. And I was trying to imagine people evolving from, you know, like the eight by 10 is like, the appetizer mm-hmm. it's like you know a canapé if you will <laughs> a canapé of yeah, the artwork yeah and uh, um and 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 then I wanted them to be able to kind of move up move up the ladder to different sizes and price points and I also at that point had a collector base through the gallery and I wanted to have something that would appeal to them as well and so that's why the 30 by 40 at two thousand dollars well, and, you know, if if you're, you know, in the gallery world, an addition of two at that size for $2,000 is an amazing value. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, and it was very important to me from the, you know, inception of the business that we were delivering the experience of being a collector to people no matter what price point that they were at. And, and, and that experience, the quality of that experience needed to be on par with what I would deliver to my most discerning collectors mm-hmm. um, because my belief is that, you know, if you deliver that experience, you're going to get people, it's the gateway drug thing, yeah. right? If you're trying to get people like hooked on weed, you're not going to give them the shake <laughs> for free. You're a pusher, Jen. Right? You're yeah, a pusher. Exactly. You know, of the best kind, but you know, but that was the whole thing is that I just knew that I, I had to give them, you know, the good stuff. And also, it was very important to me too, just in terms of the relationships that I had with collectors and also with the artists that this was a high quality experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that it's, I mean, it's been interesting sort of the evolution of the relationship with the artists as well. 
Um, the only reason that we're capable of delivering that experience at the lower price point is because we're, we have the volume that we do. And, um, you know, an artist going independently to get 208 by 10 prints made could pay $20 each for them Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's changed somewhat, but it's still, and then you have to ship them and then, you, you know, there's. Yes. There's there's a lot about our business that works because of scale yes. and because of consistency. Well, have you seen that change? I mean, one thing I'm always curious about and I've seen with, within the design and art community, there's always this sort of debate between like, is artwork that's that affordable bad for the artist? Because are they making enough money? Is it worth it? And I think I personally have seen that I think it is worth it. I think when you see, we had the Evakine girls in here a couple weeks right. ago and they were talking about asking people to slightly lower prices as a way to bring them in as a gateway. And I, I've seen people buy things because of that. But have you seen that change? Oh, Happen sure. to small to large purchases? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, there's, you know, number one, we definitely see with regularity people sort of moving up the continuum. But the other thing as well is that our mailing list is, you know, it's a super engaged audience and it's full of people who are curators and writers and editors and, you know, artists themselves. And so the audience that the work is getting in front of, it's a, it, you know, um, when when I think about what we do um, and when we talk about the business internally, we talk about having two customers, one customer, and obviously the economic engine of the business, you know, from a revenue perspective, is the collector, but the artists are our customers as well. And um, I feel it's our mission to provide them with an ever-expanding range of opportunities. And, you know, cash money is an important opportunity <laughs> and very undersung for artists in a way that I find absolutely infuriating. Um, I always say, you know, if you think about, if you play word association and you think, you know, artist, you think starving and you think collector, you think oligarch, you yes. know, and like there's something wrong with that picture. So, you know, like revenue is, you know, the the foundation of the opportunity, mm-hmm. but we're also offering exposure. We're also offering, you know, thoughtful commentary on their work. We're also offering a vehicle to promote other projects and initiatives that we're doing. And it's very important to us that we fold their broader practice into mm-hmm. the presentation of their work. And we always do that. Yes. I think, well, I think it's important that you're offering both of those things. I think especially in the independent community, there's this misconception that success and profit don't necessarily go in hand, hand oh, in let's hand. Talk about or that, that like, it's, <laughs> or that it's okay that they don't, that you're, it's somehow nobler to not be living off or not being able to do that. But I, th- I think those things should go hand right. in hand. And I love that you've always kind of infused very like business savvy vibe into all of your projects because like profit and making money are not dirty things to you. Well, I mean, I've had, so, you know, I've had the gallery for 10 years now and I came into it cold, not knowing that much about art or artists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always say that I, going into it, I expected to meet like a lot of wannabe Andy Warhols, (laughs) right? Like, you know, like, and especially like New York city art world, right? You expect that everybody is like the next Warhol, Basquiat, you know, whoever, But the thing that I learned working with artists is that there are many artists that share their mother's fondest wish that they wanted to be an accountant. And like, you know, like they because they they've they've chosen a very difficult path and they don't make art because they're lazy and they don't want to get a job. They make it because they can't not do it. Mm -hmm. And so much of their lives is their their life is sort of defined by a struggle to maintain a practice and I see people give up all the time and so a lot of what I think about in terms of creating opportunities is how do I make it possible for people not to give up and the way that I make it possible is by 
creating a platform that provides predictable, sustainable income. And part of doing that has to be that we need to be a predictable, sustainable business. And so it, it actually kind of gives me a way to prioritize our business as well, because the survival of the way that we do business is very important to me in the long term. Mm-hmm. And so it helps me kind of balance the objectives um, of all the different things. And, you know, I, I think that, um, and again, I think that like I'm really coming from a place of, you know, enormous compassion for what it is to be an artist. And I, I see that it's really hard. And I think it's something I could, I always, I say to artists all the time, I could never do what you do. It's, it's a very hard thing to do. But I do think that, you know, kind of what I can do is help make it easier. Mm-hmm. You've done a great job of that. One it's, thing I'm curious about is how you make your own life easier. Work-life balance is always a big thing for me over here. <laughs> and I'm wondering if that exists in your life. And if it does, how do you do that? Especially when you have a career like yours where your just sheer passion for it is mm-hmm. a huge part of it. Um, I'm not a pro. My boyfriend <laughs> would probably say that as well I mean part of it is actually I have a boyfriend who lives in California oh, <laughs> that does make it a little it, easier yeah it makes it I mean it's and it's interesting you know like he sort of says to me like we've talked about uh we you know like at some point we'll live in the same city together all the time but right now like I get to stay at work late or mm-hmm. be working all the time and you know we're always excited to see each other and he can go out you know and spend his whole weekend riding a bike and not worry about having to go furniture shopping with me, <laughs> which is always a struggle. Um, but so, I mean, I think that some of it is just accepting that I, I actually am so fortunate to really deeply love what I do and feel like everything that I do is work by extension of the fact that all my encounters in the world are things that I try to bring back into the work that I do. Um, but I also think, you know, realistically, like as the business has scaled, um, I can't do everything and I need to be able to delegate things. And so part of it is really recognizing what I'm not good at and trying to put people around me who are good at those things. And like, wait, I, I would like, I really try to, I like working with people who are better than me at stuff. And I like people who are confident about the fact that they're better than me at stuff. Cause they have to be confident too. Cause I'm, I, always have an opinion, even if it's not an informed (laughs) opinion, and I will argue that opinion passionately. Um, But, you know, so I try to, you know, I I try to figure out the things that I'm not good at. And then also sort of, and this is always a work in progress, but it's sort of like, you know, I, I think that there's, I'm always striving for this better version of myself who like cooks dinner and, you know, I don't know, like irons or sheets or something, but I'm never gonna be that person. And so... I try to outsource as much as possible. I think it's fine. I think you're someone who maybe you're not ironing your sheets, but you've done an awful lot to change a lot of people's lives. That's nice to hear. Thanks for doing (laughs) what you do, Jen. Thanks. Um, That's all the time we have for today. You can visit Jen Beckman at Jen Beckman, B-E-K-M-A-N, no C, (laughs) dot com, and also at 20by200.com where there is a great holiday sale happening right now. So Jen, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.